Amen. Thank you all so much for a wonderful time of worship. Acts chapter 17 tonight, as we continue our series on Wednesday nights through the book of Acts. While you're finding Acts 17, just a reminder, we have a very important congregational meeting Sunday afternoon, 3 o'clock, right here in the auditorium. We want to share an update with you about where we are with regards to phase two and our building program over here. So please make the effort to be here. It's a very important meeting. As I said at the very beginning, God created us to be worshipers, and we're going to either worship someone or something in our life, and we're going to see human beings engaged in that kind of worship tonight in our passage. I want to remind us that to worship is to be engaged in devoted activity. So we need to ask ourselves tonight, what devoted activity or activities are we engaged in right now that express our worship of our God? Because that's what worship is, devoted activity. And tonight in this chapter, you're going to see woven through this chapter that their worship was expressed in three ways. Now, this isn't all-inclusive. There's obviously other ways to express worship as well, obviously singing, praising. But tonight in the chapter, I want us to see that their worship of God was expressed in their heart for their Savior, their heart for the Scriptures, and their heart for the lost. Heart for the Savior, heart for the Scriptures, and a heart for the lost. Notice beginning in chapter 17 that they traveled through Amphilius and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica. Again, a familiar place for us that knows our New Testament because Paul wrote a letter to that church. In fact, two letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Notice the word traveled. Let's not forget what these folks were doing that was expressing their heart for their Savior. They had left their homes. They had left their families. They were making sacrifices all along the way as they traveled. They were progressing in their obedience to the will of God, but let's not forget what that entailed. They were out there traveling every day from place to place. Again, living in different places, sleeping every night maybe in different homes that would be opened up to them. It was not an easy life as they went, and yet they did it all as an expression of a heart for their Savior because this is what the Savior asked of them. Go into all the world and make disciples. Spread my message. Spread my gospel. And so even in their travel, even in their willingness to make the sacrifices that they were making every day, that was an expression of their heart of worship for their Savior. Notice also in verse 2, where did Paul go first off? He would always go when he entered into a town or a city into a synagogue. Folks, 
That's not an easy place to minister at this point. That is Paul being willing, because of his heart for his Savior, to accept a challenge. This was difficult. This was hard. This was not easy. He was basically going into a group of Jewish people and saying to them, you missed your Messiah. That was not always going to be a message that was well received. And yet he always went because he had a heart for those people. In the book of Romans, Paul says, I would even desire to be a curse from Christ if it would bring my people to salvation. That's how much he loved his fellow Jews. And yet it was his love for his fellow Jews that was also expressing his heart for his Savior. Because he could never love his fellow Jews as much as he did if it wouldn't have been because of the love that he was receiving and that he had for his Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice also in verse 2, he had a habit. In fact, it says, as he customarily did. This is in the perfect tense, meaning that this is what Paul always did. He had habits in his life. And these habits were non-negotiable. They were what he always did. Do we have spiritual habits? Are we faithful to certain things that are non-negotiables in our life? What about our worship of God, our prayer, our time in the Word, our time in God's house? Paul had a habit. He was there all the time. And when he was there, Notice what he was doing. He wasn't sharing his own opinions, his own thoughts. He was addressing them from the scriptures, verse 2, the word of God. He had a love and a heart for the scriptures. And he knew that God had endowed his power in his word and that it would be the word of God that would bring life and transformation to people's lives explaining verse 3 and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. He opened up the meaning and intent of the scriptures. That's what the word explaining means. And then provided scriptural evidence, cross-referencing, if you will, scriptures to show that Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer. And they missed it because they weren't looking or expecting a suffering Messiah, even though the Old Testament clearly taught it. Their eyes were blinded to that. Notice this Jesus. The message was always centered on Jesus, the one we just sung about. No one else above the Lord. He's the one I'm proclaiming to you. He's the one who is your Messiah. But again, remember, in this context, it's trying to convince the Jews that it was in the plan of God for this Jesus, your Messiah, to suffer, to die. This is exactly what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. He says, for the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. 
He says, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jew, it's a stumbling block. To Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God because Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For it was, God says, through my wisdom, not man's wisdom, that all of this plan of salvation was to take place because he says, in man's wisdom, they could never find salvation. From God's perspective, man's wisdom is foolishness. To man, God's wisdom is foolishness. Some of them, verse 4, were persuaded, not all, it never will be all, but some were persuaded by Paul sharing the gospel and they joined Paul and Silas along with another large group of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But notice in verse 5, once again, those advancing spiritually are met with resistance and opposition. Let me repeat that. If you are making progress in your walk with God, if you are advancing, if we as a church are advancing and making progress, we are going to be met with resistance and opposition. The winds of resistance will always be there as we march forward on our path following our Savior. And again, that expresses a heart for our Savior, that we're willing to pay whatever the cost is. We are, ever, we are willing to suffer whatever the, the results are of our following the Lord, but it's not going to matter because our heart for our Savior outweighs the cost and the suffering and the pain and the trials and the tribulations. It's not going to matter. The resistance, in fact, is only going to make those that truly have a heart for the Savior more determined to keep on keeping on. It's not going to discourage us. It's actually going to just light our fire a little bit hotter. Notice that they gathered together some worthless men from the rabble in the marketplace. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar. They attacked Jason's house, trying to find Paul and Silas to bring them out of the assembly. When they did not find them, notice what they did to Jason. They dragged Jason out along with some of the brothers before the city officials screaming, these people who have stirred up trouble throughout the world have come here too. And Jason had welcomed them as guests. Notice, just because Jason, we don't know who Jason is, we'll meet him in heaven one day, but just because he welcomed Paul and Silas and the missionary team, he was being persecuted. But he didn't care because he had a heart for his Savior. And he was willing to be identified with those missionaries and those people who were loving God and sharing God's message and bringing people to salvation because he had a heart for the Savior. And he was willing to do it. I want to talk about verse 6 for a moment. This phrase, to stir up trouble, literally means to turn something upside down, to disturb, to unsettle, to upset the status quo. Or let's just say it simply, to change things. People don't want to change. They don't like change. 
They don't like being disturbed and upsetting the status quo. And yet, when Christ is advancing his kingdom, that will always be the case. If you and I are ever going to be conformed to the image of Christ, then that means you and I need to be okay with change every single day of our lives so that God can transform us into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. If we are resistant to change, then we're never going to consistently put ourselves in a spiritual place, spiritual position, spiritual environment where we're continually changing. We're going to just sit down and say, I'm good with where I'm at, I'm done. We can't have that, folks. We can't have that at our church. We can't have that kind of attitude in our lives. We've got to be willing to continually be unsettled because God is never going to allow us to be settled too long. Settled in him always. Resting in him and settled in him, absolutely. Every single second of our lives, but not settled in where we are with him. We must never become complacent, apathetic, and satisfied. As Nicole even shared tonight, there's always more. There's always more of God. And this is something that God wants us to get used to down here because in eternity, that's all we're going to be doing. We're going to be spending all of eternity growing and changing and learning more about our infinite God. Heaven is going to be a place of learning and growing. It's not like we get there and we just know everything about God. That's never going to be the case. He's infinite. We're never going to get to the end of him. So even a billion years from now, we'll know more about him than we do now, but we're not going to exhaust him ever. Are we okay with God disturbing our lives a little bit and unsettling us and upsetting the status quo and changing things. It's one of the things that literally kills churches is when the majority of people in a local church say, well, we've, that's the way we've always done it. So we got to keep doing it that way. And never be open to anything new. Now, there's some traditions and, and things that it's okay to hold on to. But remember, our God is a God of freshness. And he's always doing something new. Or at least he wants to. If he can find a group of people that's willing to do it with him. These folks didn't like that. Their, their lives, God... God wanted to come in and turn their lives upside down for good, and they didn't like that. They wanted to hold on to their old, unfulfilled, unsatisfied life, just like many people do today. And then notice what they say in verse 7. They're all acting against Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king named Jesus. Oh, you better believe there is, and he's not just another king. He's the king of kings. He's the one and only true king that we sung about tonight. There is no other. He's it. He has no rival. And that's part of the rub as well. Is Remember, we're talking about worship. We're talking about, about being a fanatic about someone or something. We're talking about, you know, devoted activity that we're engaged in. And, and God will have no rival. 
It's it. He's it. But throughout our life, oh my, as we're going to see, we're so many distractions. So many things that we can build our lives around or build our lives on or pursue or whatever, and they end up being idols. Is Jesus our king? Practically speaking. I mean, in our heads, we would say, oh, Jesus is king. Is he the king of our life? Not just our creator, not just our savior. Is he calling the shots? Do the priorities of our life reflect that he is the king? He's the one that has first place. He's the one that gets preeminence. They caused confusion among the crowd, city officials who heard these things, and after the city officials had received bail from Jason and the others, they released them. That's what happened in Thessalonica. They kept moving on. Didn't let anything stop them or slow them down. The brothers sent Paul and Silas then off to Berea during the night. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue, as they always did, to the Jew first. That's what Paul did. Now notice verse 11. These Jews were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they eagerly received the message, examining the scriptures carefully every day to see if these things were so. They possessed a humble, teachable spirit. They were not closed-minded like the Thessalonians were. You and I need to have a humble, teachable spirit and not be closed-minded or closed off to what God wants to do, what he wants to reveal to us, what he wants to, to, to do in our lives and what he wants to lead us into. And then notice here, their worship is expressed in their heart, not just for their Savior now, but for his scriptures, his word. The word examining is a really important word here. It speaks of these folks being like forensic examiners sifting through the evidence. Think about that. You know, a lot of you, like, like me, may be interested in, in crime shows or, or whatever, and you know that in order to be someone that goes into the, the scene of a crime or even like they're uh, medical examiners or, or coroners or whatever that have to determine, you know, how someone died, they literally have to be so detail-oriented. They can't miss anything. They've got to sift through every little piece of evidence because they don't want to miss something because it may be a key piece of evidence. The Bible is saying that that's the kind of attitude and approach we should have towards the Word of God. We rush through the Word of God too often in our lives as Christians because we treat it as something that we need to do, but then it becomes sort of this duty and obligation that I've just got to get through it, and we can read a whole chapter every day and walk away not really understanding or knowing or making it have an impact in our life because it's just something that we check the box off and we move on. That's not how God wants us to relate to his word. I would rather read one verse every day and literally be that forensic examiner that examines every single word in that verse and allows every single word to hit me because every word, the Bible says, has been inspired by God. Every word. So from God's perspective, there's no throwaway words in my word. 
It all has purpose. And so I think God is saying to us, we reveal our heart for the scriptures, for the word of God, when we slow down and allow it to truly make the impact and the imprint and and allow it to influence our lives as God intended for it to. Because again, the Bible is not for information, as I say many times around here, it's for transformation. And if we're not being transformed by our time in the word of God, if God's not changing us, unsettling us a little bit, disturbing us, upsetting the status quo of our lives a little bit, when his word comes in, then we're not allowing it to do what God intended for it to do. It is his surgical instrument, as the writer of Hebrews says, sharper than any two-edged sword, getting down in between the joints of the bone and marrow. It cuts into the very inner person of our lives. It can get down in between things that nothing else can reach. It can penetrate like nothing else can. It is a light like the lamp that it is that can shine lights on dark places in our lives and and help us to get over those, those periods of darkness and those places of darkness. It can do it all. But we've got to be sifting through the evidence, taking our time. And then also, as these Bereans did, coming to our own conclusions and convictions. Because notice it says, examining the scriptures carefully. Oh, by the way, how often? Every day. Every day. To see if these things were so. That's incredible. This is the Apostle Paul who's basically teaching and preaching his word. Did they take Paul's word for it? No. They went home after they went to church, if you will, opened up their Bible and said, I got to check this out for myself. I hope you do the same thing with me or any other pastor, minister, person who claims to be a spokesperson for God. I hope you don't take their word for it. I hope you're like a Berean and you go home because here's the deal. Too often, when we don't live that way, we're living off of somebody else's fumes. We're living off of somebody else's convictions and conclusions about what the Word of God says. And the only way the Word of God is truly going to to have a fire in our bones is when we've come to those conclusions, when we've come to those convictions, when it's not, this is what the pastor believes or this is what my friend believes. No, this is what I believe. And I can stand before a group of people with confidence and conviction because I've run these things out myself and this is where I came to. God wants all of us to be that way. The only way we can be that way is to spend time every day having a heart of worship that's expressed in a heart for the scriptures. It is the word of God. Notice the fruit of being in the scriptures daily, verse 12, is that many believed. Now I know in the context this is meaning many came to faith in Christ. But let's not forget that it doesn't end there. That faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so if you and I want our faith to be built up, if we want to believe in God more and trust him more, guess what the scriptures say? Get into my word. There's nothing that will increase our faith, our belief, our trust in God like time in the scriptures. Our heart of worship is expressed 
in a heart for the word of God. Therefore, many believed along with quite a few prominent Greek men and women. Verse 13. When the Jews from Thessalonica heard this, that Paul was doing this, guess what? They came there and caused trouble there too because guess what? Persecution will follow the servants of God who are making a difference. Persecution will follow the servants of God who are making a difference. Because that's what persecution really means. Someone's pursuing you and not for good, but to cause trouble, to annoy you, to disturb you in a negative sense. Let's move on to the rest of the chapter because this is the biggest chunk. And this is really all about a love for the lost. And we've already seen it. Everywhere they go, they're sharing the message of the gospel so that people can come to faith. But this really emphasizes that. Again, in this chapter, you see a heart of worship expressed in a heart for the Savior, a heart for the Scriptures, and now a heart for the lost. Notice, while Paul was waiting, verse 16, for them in Athens, his spirit was greatly upset because he saw the city was full of idols. When you and I go out there into the world today, does it bother us and burden us when we see the lost? Does it affect us at all? It did Paul. Because he had a burden for these people. And, and it bothered him to see all these people living for what really doesn't matter. He saw... The city was full of idols. That word Saul means he took time to carefully observe his surroundings. To see what people were living for other than God. And let me say this. Man's mind is a perpetual factory of idols. I want you to remember that. Man's mind is a perpetual factory of idols. Because an idol is anything that takes the place of God. God deserves our worship, period. Amen. And when anything or anyone takes the place of God in our life and becomes more important, more significant than God, that, my friend, is an idol. Idols aren't just those little statues in people's homes. Idols are anything. And we live in a world of distraction today where the world, the flesh, and the devil are always throwing things out there for us to chase after. And that's why we've got to stay focused. So he was addressing the Jews, verse 17, and the God-fearing Gentiles, notice, very important, in the synagogue. So yes, he was in the house of God regularly. We know that. But notice also, in the marketplace. Paul went where the lost was. We are living in a day and age now where Christians are pulling back and pulling away from their culture. Mostly to me, my opinion, out of fear, out of intimidation, 
We don't want to be out there with all those lost people. They bother us. So we want to just stay in our own little cloistered groups of Christians where we're comfortable. And yet, that's not what God called us to. God wants us, yes, to express our heart of worship for him in his house. But he equally wants us to express our heart for him in the marketplace. And every day, Paul spent time, notice, in the marketplace with whoever was there. Because Paul understood, whoever I came in contact with that day, that was part of God's providence. Now, I'm going to skip down to verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there used to spend their time in nothing else than telling or listening to something new. I want you to zero in on that phrase, to spend their time, because that word time also means in the Bible opportunity. And again, it's just a reminder, when we get to the end of our lives, what will we spend the most time doing? And what did the time we were alive give us opportunity to do that maybe we didn't do it? It's something we all need to think about as we move through our life. Because again, worship is all about devoted, being engaged in devoted activity. And we can, we can live for a lot of worthless things and things that really aren't going to matter in eternity. So Paul stood before the Areopagus. Simply, folks, I would describe the Areopagus this way in Athens. It was a think tank. You've heard that phrase probably in, our, in your life, a think tank. It was a group of people that got together in the intellectual center of the world at that time because that's what Athens was. Athens was the intellectual center of the world. The Greeks. It was all about the head. It was all about the intellect. It was all about analyzing everything. And Paul was right out there with them, standing there. But notice what Paul did. As he's in the marketplace with these non-believers, he is adapting his approach and his message to his audience. He wouldn't approach the people in the Areopagus the same way he would approach the Jews in a synagogue. And you and I have to do the same thing. Through the wisdom of God, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, we have to adapt our approach and our message to everyone that we ever come in contact with and that we're around. And too often as Christians, we expect that we can adopt the same approach to a non-believer that we would to a believer. No. No. And that's why many Christians, I'll call them that, down through the years who approached unbelievers with basically a message of judgment and condemnation and telling them first before they tell them anything else because of how you live or you're going to hell, that doesn't work. Because that's not the way the Bible teaches us to approach those that are spiritually blind. Notice what Paul says as he stood there. He said, men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. 
For as I went around, I observed closely your objects of worship. Again, man was created by God to be a worshiper. And even in Athens, this intellectual center of the, of the world at that time, they were doing it. They were worshiping because every human being will worship something or someone. The question is, who or what is our object or objects of worship? Notice Paul says, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship without knowing it, this is who I'm going to proclaim to you. And by the way, the word worship that Paul uses in verse 23 means to seek and fill the void within and be fulfilled. To seek, to fill, that's even what the word religious means in verse 22. It means they were created with that void just like every human being is and they're trying to fill it with something or someone. They haven't found it yet because they haven't found a relationship with the one true God. And Paul is expressing his heart of worship for his God by having a heart for these lost people in Athens, in the marketplace. His message consists of three parts, and it's not a long message, so hang in there with me. I've got four minutes. In verses 24 through 27, the first part of the message basically is, you are surrounded by the revelation of God. That is something that all of us could say to any unsaved person. No matter what their background, no matter where they are in the world, what country they're born in, what you have been surrounded since birth with the revelation of God. And God's revelation is clear. Therefore, that's why Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, you're without excuse. Because you have been surrounded and immersed in the revelation of God since you came into this world. Notice the purpose of this revelation of God, verse 27. So that they would search for God, make an effort to seek him. Nicole talked about seeking the Lord tonight and perhaps groping around for him. Why does Paul use the word grope? Because again, the people who don't know God yet are spiritually blind. They have to grope. They're in darkness. And we need to help them when we see that they have a heart that's willing to seek, to keep searching and seeking and leading them and guiding them, not judging them and condemning them. They're lost. And Paul goes on to say, God did all this, though, eventually so that they would find him. That's the ultimate goal. God wants to be found. And he made it so he made his revelation so well that people could find him. There's never going to be a person that gets to heaven and goes, I couldn't find you even though I wanted to. That's never going to be the case. That's why even it says in verse 26 that God's the one that literally put the boundaries around nations, determined when and where we were born, where we would live and all that. God had a purpose in all of it. God is basically saying to us, and this, I don't know about you, this blew my mind. God is saying to us this. I brought you into the world at this time in history because I, God, determined in my infinite wisdom that if I brought you into the world at this time in history, it would give you the best chance to know me. Think about that. He did that with every human being. 
Oh, and I put you, you're, you're going to be born and you're going to live in Spain. Oh, you're, you're going to be in the United States. And, and every country that I put you in, same purpose. God is saying, I put you there rather than here so that you would find me. Think about that. That's amazing. That's how much God wants to be found. And that's why Paul said no human being will ever stand before God with, I couldn't find you. Every step that God took to bring a person in and where they lived and where they grew up and all that was all about finding him. Second point that Paul makes, verse 28. He says to them, you actually perceive this revelation. It's not just out there, it actually gets through to you because Paul quotes a couple of the Greek poets who have said, in God or some supernatural being, we live and move and exist. And he says, even your other poets say, oh, and we're his offspring. In other words, they understand there's someone or something bigger than themselves. So this revelation has gotten through to them, but not all the way. Because Paul says in verse 30, the last point that he makes in his message is, Though God has overlooked these times of ignorance, he now is commanding all people everywhere to repent because he set a day on which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man he designated, having provided proof, everyone by raising him from the dead. Obviously, we know who that person is. It's his son, Jesus. So the last point Paul's making in this message is Paul then begins to say that unless they worship the one true God, all of their other worship will be in vain. Because only the worship of Jesus is the only worship that God will accept. All other worship is worthless. It doesn't matter how sincere it is. It doesn't matter how much effort is put into it. It doesn't matter. If it's not the worship of Jesus, it is worthless worship. That's why... And she does it every week, twice a week. But I love those songs that Nicole picked out for tonight. I mean, that just like nailed it. If you didn't get Jesus out of all that, my goodness, again, something wrong with our senses there. Notice, it was all about the resurrection from the dead. I don't have time to go into that tonight. But that's really the key. That, that separates it right there. That, that's the as Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, everything that you and I believe hinges on that one historical fact. He says that to the Corinthians. He says, look, if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything else gets into the, the box. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there's nothing to live for. It, it all hinges on that one thing. And like Every time you and I share the word or the revelation of God, we're going to get a mixed response and a mixed reception, just like Paul. Because notice what the reception or response was. Some began to scoff, and you'll have that. We've got to be okay with that. Some people will just say we're crazy or whatever. Others will say, we'd like to hear more. We're not convinced yet, but we're open to hearing more. And then some joined and believed, verse 34. And that's the way it'll be. 
And because of our heart for our Savior, we're going to be okay not to be the most popular and not to always feel like we're always going to have a great response when we're doing what God wants us to do. No, God, again, just holds us responsible to be faithful to what he's called us to. He doesn't hold us responsible for other people's response. That reveals their heart, not our heart. That reveals where they are with God, not us. So I hope tonight's chapter inspires all of us and reminds us we were created to be worshipers. And worship is a devoted activity that we are continually engaged in. And here tonight, we see that their worship was expressed in their heart for their Savior Jesus, their heart for the Scriptures, their heart for the lost. God, we thank you tonight for the wonderful time we've had in your house worshiping you, Jesus, and being in your word and hearing from you. And I pray that tonight's time that we have spent here has been profitable and beneficial and not been spent in vain. That it truly meant something to us. That it meant something for us. That it hit a nerve. That it changed us in some way. That we were willing, Holy Spirit, for you to unsettle us a little bit and to upset our status quo and to continue to change us and conform us into the image of our Savior Jesus. To not allow us to become satisfied and apathetic and complacent in our walk and relationship and fellowship with you. But to say, God, I want more because I know there's more to have. Lord, would you solidify us in you, God, and strengthen us in you. And even as Nicole shared, may it not end tonight with the end of our service. May what you are doing and what you started in our lives continue on into tomorrow and through this week and on into the weekend and on through the rest of this year and even into next year, God. Light a fire that cannot be extinguished in our church, God. Send revival, God, to us. Do what you need to do to be most glorified. And may we get out of your way, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.